0: This Dharma talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good Good morning, morning. Good morning online. I want to welcome you again. So today is the first day of our seven day Rohatsu retreat. I feel rusty. Last year, uh, I only sat a couple of days of Rohatsu because I made an unforeseen trip to Pennsylvania to see my mother who we thought was dying at that time. And um, she rallied and is still with us actually. So it's been 13 months since I sat this many days. And um, I want to invite you to take care of yourselves during this week. Take care of your bodies and minds, and that includes during dharma talks. If you would like to take a break by sitting in a chair, if you're not normally sitting in a chair. Please sit in a chair, give yourself a break from being on the floor, and it's fine to sit uh, somewhat informally during dharma talks. You don't have to sit cross-legged either if that's your habit. Right? So it's a it's a long week. <laughs> please, you know, find your edge, but don't don't break in the first day or two. So, we chanted just now the koso I'm saying this in part for the benefit of people who are not in the room, which is High Ancestor Dogen's vow for uh, attaining the Way. It is extracted from one of his teachings in Shobogenzo, and sometimes it's chanted before lectures instead of our short chant, and I thought we would do that since it's somewhat inspiring very inspiring at least to me and I think all of these teachings uh, of this week maybe will work together. I hope they will. The things we're chanting during morning service and also for some of us what we've been studying the last six weeks in the class that the inquiry that we've been doing together on Dogen's early teachings. So what I want to do as you'll know if you got my email of yesterday is focus during this retreat on the teachings of Ancestor, Kazan Jokin. Kazan is our ancestor, although he lived three generations after Dogen. He lived from uh, three Zen generations, three human generations. He lived from 1264 uh, to 1325. So Dogen lived from 1200 to 1253. So Kazan was born 10 years after Dogen died. So they, they, there's a, there's a, they're not contemporaries. Right, and in any way, and Kazan never studied with Dogen. Kazan's name, which we are chanting in our names of Buddhas and Ancestors in the morning service, more fully, is Kaizon Jokin. And he was the founding abbot, as many of you may already know, of the Sojiji Monastery, which is kind of a sister temple to Aheji, the temple founded by Dogen up in the mountains in uh, the, the part of Japan that's much less accessible. So Gigi is in, in Yokohama, which is the great port city near Tokyo. And it's always been the bigger monastery, and it is in some ways the more wealthy monastery, but it's not necessarily the more important monastery. We all sort of are fixated on Iheiji because that was founded by Dogen. Since the late 19th century, Kazan has officially been designated, along with Dogen, as one of the two founding ancestors, even though there were other uh, individuals who carried on the lineage, but not, were not honored in the same way. In fact, they're called the two patriarchs. We kind of get away from that language now, but the two ancestors of the Soto school of Zen. Dogen is called Koso. Uh, that's his honorific title which is High Ancestor, so when we chant the Ehe Koso on? the Koso of that is, you know, High Ehe, High Ancestor, Ehe Dogen. Kazon is called Taiso, which means Great Ancestor. Tai is a word for great. That's his honorific title. And sometimes these are translated into English as Founding Ancestor, Dogen, and Succeeding Ancestor. So there's a, there was a real attempt in the 19th century to kind of close this gap, <laughs> this temporal gap of uh, three generations. Even though you know there's not a direct succession, that's how it's been handed down to us, how the Soto Shu, the Soto School, wants us to think about it. Now if you go upstairs, up the stairs, you'll see a, a kind of cabinet, a butsudan at the top, Right? And in there, this is our founder's shrine, right, our Kai Sando. And if you stop, as you're supposed to stop and bow, <laughs> if you pause and look, there are two little scrolls mounted on the inside of the cabinet of two figures facing each other. There are two monks in fancy chairs with fancy ocaseas, and they're carrying uh, their ceremonial whisks. And these are, de- are Dogen and Khezan, and this is, this is something you will see in all Zen temples. And in fact, we had to amend our bylaws at the Chapel Hill Zen Center to include the both of them in order for our temple to be accepted as an official temple of the Soto School. You couldn't just have Dogen, we had to have them both. Right. So this has been going on since the 19th century and uh, since 1877, I didn't know this, until this week. Kezon has been honored with his own ceremony in the official Soto Zen calendar. So this was an attempt to kind of equalize them. There's a lot of politics behind this. There was a lot of rivalry over the centuries between Sojiji and between Aheiji. And I wanted to just say a few more words about Kazan to understand why he's getting all this attention when he is not the direct successor of Dogen. So he entered Eheiji in 1276 when he was 12 years old. <laughs> and he studied Zen there under four of Dogen's disciples. So this is the bridge between Dogen and him. He studied with Ajo, who is responsible for writing down and helping to edit and preserve a lot of Dogen's teaching. He was his direct chief disciple. He died in 1280. And then two more somewhat obscure figures. If you want to read the history of Soto Zen, you can. Um, I won't dwell on them here, um, but there were, there were two others called Jakuen and Gien, And then there was Gi Gikai, who lived from 1219 to 1309. And in 1298, Kazan succeeded Gikai, um, as the second abbot of a monastery called Daijoji, So there were other monasteries being founded besides eihei and Sojiji. There was an attempt to disseminate Soto-zen, which was a new thing at the time. Right, so um, Keizan succeeded Gikai, and eventually Keizan handed a, a Daiji, this monastery, Daijo-ji, to his, another of his disciples, Meho Sosetsu, and began constructing yet another monastery uh, in another province, Noto province. That was called Tokoku san yokoji. And I'm going through all of this because uh, Keizan intended that monastery to be the chief monastery of Soto Zen. So he was an empire builder, right? Um, that didn't happen. Tokoku san yokoji didn't become the chief monastery. Um, and but, having built that monastery, Kazan then founded six more <laughs> monasteries, okay, all of this happening uh, within a century or so of Dogen. Uh, and interestingly, one of the monasteries that he founded was called Ho oji. This is the first soto women 's monastery um, and then he finally founded sojiji after that um, so Another thing about our lineage of Buddhas and ancestors, if you pay attention to these names, which sound you know, just like sounds to us, eventually they sort of become familiar and little things about them may sort of uh, enter your bloodstream. Um, we are ending our chanting during this retreat with Kazan, right, not Dogen. And that is because of all these, this activity of founding monasteries and disseminating Zen and especially paying attention to women. Um, Keizan stabilized Dogen's lineage. He founded the second great temple of Soto Zen in Japan and he left um, a body of uh, material for us to study. And We'll, we'll uh, be studying one of his teachings today. Um, after him, Soto Zen's lineage proliferates with multiple official successors. So Keizan is the last Soto successor that we all agree on. And that's why if you go to other monasteries besides uh, or other temples besides our lineages, you'll hear different names after Kezon, Right? We don't all have the same transmission from the 13th century to today. Okay. So Keizan's writing. His main writing was a text called the Denko Roku. And this is sometimes called or translated as the record of the transmission of the lamp or of the light. So these are biographies and enlightenment stories of 53 generations of our Zen ancestors from Bodhidharma down to Kohen right, Uh, the monk with whom Dogen collaborated the most uh, closely and Dogen's immediate successor at Aheji. He also wrote, this big fat book, a set of monastic regulations, which are called the Kezan Shingi. Shingi is a genre from China, uh, and uh, a a kind of habit of writing monastic regulations. Many founders of temples did this. They wrote their own set of regulations. Dogen did it. Um, The Ahei Shingi. You can read that if you want to. It's kind of interesting. It tells you about how to do everything, including brush your teeth and use the toilet and so on. Um, so these regulations of Kason's form the basis for the monastic regulations that are still used in Japanese Soto temples and in a somewhat modified and simplified form at places like Tassahara. So the reason why we do some things, at least the way we do them, is because of these kinds of regulations, and Keizans in particular. And then finally he wrote the text that uh, we're going to look into this week. The Zazen Yojinki, or advice on Zazen, also translated as points to consider in Zazen. So I think this text is worth our attention for a number of reasons. First, Keizan himself is important. Even though he's really overshadowed for us by Dogen, that's uh, actually because we're studying here in the United States. Dogen, we see, as our founder. If you go to Japan, people who are trained in Sojiji, for him, for them, Kezon, is really close. They really celebrate Kezon. As founders, Dogen and Kezon have different functions. Right? It's important to remember or to recognize that Kezon was really close to and empowered women to practice. And so it's not just that monastery I just mentioned, starting with women in his own family. Right? He, he worked closely with women. And you know, Dogen had women disciples too and had many women kind of following him, but more from the point of view of like, how to put it, lay followers and donors. Kazan took a somewhat different path with women. And the last names and the women's ancestors that we chant in the Japanese group feature many of his disciples. And that's a whole other topic, but I just wanted to uh, mention this. Um, I will just make, uh, just quote one uh, brief mention of this phenomenon by the scholar William Botiford. And this is what he says about Kazon and his uh, relationships with women. Botiford says Kazan's religious development seems to have been guided as much by women as by men. Women played powerful roles in many early Zen communities, including those of Dogen and Gien, but mainly as patrons. Kezon learned from women, especially from his mother and grandmother. His father is never mentioned in his writings. This is unusual because most temples are passed down uh, from father to son, or at least from some other male uh, ancestor. Kezon spent his first eight years being raised by his grandmother. She had been one of Dogen's first patrons on his return from China. Um, and probably she had been a lay disciple of Myozen, Dogen's first uh, Rinzai Zen teacher. Keizan's links to the Soto school began, therefore, literally before his worldly existence. Right, so this is his uh, kind of entanglement with women. But the main reason for us right now to read Zazen Yojinki is to receive this ancestor's unfolding of Zazen, and in a way it's his own Fukan Zazengi, which we chanted this morning and we studied earlier during the practice period, the instructions for Zazen. Keizan's commentary further unpacks Soto Zen teachings on the practice of Zazen. And you may recall that Dogen wrote two texts specifically on how to do Zazen, the Fukan Zazengi, which is the famous one, and that everybody chants in all Soto uh, groups, and a shorter one called just simply the Zazengi. And these are also a kind of genre. Many Chinese Zen masters wrote such instructions, and they all have elements in common. If you read more than one of them, you start to hear some repetition. But Keizan's text, has more extensive instructions, very kind of practical instructions. And they have a particular quality that I wanted to share with you as a kind of coda or bookend to our study these past weeks of Dogen's early teachings. So I shared a translation uh, with people who were signed up for the, um, uh, for the uh, retreat. Um, and... It is by uh, two priests, Yasuda Joshu and Dainin. Sorry, Yasu, <laughs> Yasuda Joshu Roshi and Anzan Hoshin Roshi. And this was published also in the second edition of this book, *The Art of Just Sitting*. I highly recommend this book if you haven't encountered it or studied it. Uh, edited by John Dido Lurie of the Mountains and uh, Rivers. Uh, sorry, Mountains and Waters lineage. Um, Order. Um, Some of us studied this book last year in a class that I taught. Um, It's a collection of writings by both ancestral and contemporary teachers about Sazen. There are many translations available of this essay. Thomas Cleary also wrote uh, a translation. And as usual, I recommend, if you're interested in it, to to read more than one version um, to get a fuller sense of the teaching, as translations vary. Um, So for the benefit of those who haven't got the translation, I'm going to read uh, from the first few paragraphs. And if you have it with you, if you brought a copy with you, please feel free to look at it to help you kind of keep track of what I'm saying, but you can also just listen. So this is how he opens in this translation. This is Kazon. Sitting is the way to clarify the ground of experience and to rest at ease in your actual nature. Actual and nature are capitalized in this translation. To rest at ease in your actual nature. This is called the display of the original face and revealing the landscape of the basic ground. Drop through this body-mind and you will be far beyond such forms as sitting or lying down. Beyond considerations of good or bad, transcend any divisions between usual people and sages. Pass beyond the boundary between sentient beings and Buddha. Putting aside all concerns, shed all attachments. Do nothing at all. Don't fabricate any things with the six senses. Kazan goes on to say, who is this? Its name is unknown. It cannot be called body. It cannot be called mind. Trying to think of it, the thought vanishes. Trying to speak of it, words die. It is like a fool, an idiot. It is as high as a mountain, deep as the ocean. Without peak or depths, its brilliance is unthinkable. It shows itself silently. Between sky and earth, only this whole body is seen. This is one without compare. He has completely died. Eyes clear, she stands nowhere. Where is there any dust? What can obstruct such a one?" That's his opening. (laughs) So it's very interesting. This is me speaking. It's very interesting how Kazan goes straight to the heart of the matter of uh, what he calls here um, actual nature, which is Buddha nature, your original face. He tells us who we really are in very vivid and clear and confident terms and, and somewhat stark terms at the end. I think when we hear words like, uh, you know, someone who has completely died, uh, you know, that kind of maybe sets our teeth on edge a little bit or makes us uneasy. But anyway, I'll return to that kind of language later. Right. Um, he doesn't start with Zazen instruction even though this title is Points to Consider in Zazen, right? That's not where he begins. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I was thinking of this in Cohen France as a, a teacher uh, and, uh, Zen teacher in Nova Scotia also comments on this. You know, what we do when new people come to our temple is offer them Zazen instruction, right? We don't tell them about Dogen's teaching or Buddha's teaching. We don't try to teach them anything about Buddhism, really. We just... To tell them about Zazen. Right? And this is true of dozens of Zen centers and groups everywhere. And I think we do this because really the practice of Zazen is very simple. And you need to experience it for yourself and you need to see for yourself what happens when you try it. Right? And we don't want to fill new people up with ideas or expectations or concepts or goals. <laughs> right? Um, and... Uh, that, you know, it seems to me to be valuable and the right approach. And I just want to quote what Cohen Franz has to say about this practice that we have of offering the nuts and bolts of zazen and then comparing that to Kazan's opening statement. Cohen says, Kazan's approach ultimately, this, his opening approach, ultimately speaks to the same thing, that is, doing zazen. Instead of saying, you know, choose a quiet place or sit on a cushion, sit like this, you know, very specific instructions, he begins by saying, first, realize your true nature, know who you are and your place in the world, and then do zazen. And Cohen continues, if there's something that's radical, he means in Zen teaching in general, but I think especially in Dogen's Zen, If there is something that is radical, something that is critical in our understanding about what this tradition is, it's this. Rather than practice to become something, we practice with that thing as the starting point. We are told in this tradition that only a Buddha can do zazen. That zazen itself is a gesture of awakening. It's not a path, not a means, not a tool. It's an expression of who you already are, what you already are, and what everything already is. So Kazon begins not by telling us how to hold our hands, (laughs) but how to hold ourselves in the world. That's Koan's comment. And I think this is a really, really important point that distinguishes Kazon in particular. Now, it's true Maybe, maybe that Cohen is overstating this a little bit. In the Fukan Zazengi, Dogen does not start with the technical instructions, but he does move very quickly to them, and it's a much more concise text than the one that we're, we're looking at. It takes Kazan longer to get to the specifics of Zazen. We'll see that. But once he does, he goes into more detail than Dogen, even when his instructions and Dogen's overlap. So... That's the flavor of Kazon that I mentioned before. So after this opening, this rather startling opening, the very first thing is sitting, right? The way to clarify the ground of experiences or the mind ground, as it's also called in other translations. This phrase came up in our our class uh, a few weeks ago. As I said, this is your original face. Sometimes it's called the face before you were born, uh, Buddha nature. And just as Dogen does, Kazan says that in Zazen, we rest at ease in this actual nature. Dogen puts it, Zazen is the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. Kazan says it's resting in original or actual nature. You also will probably recognize the phrase dropping body-mind or as Dogen says it, body and mind, dropping body and mind. And this refers to Dogen's experience of awakening. <clears throat> as his teacher in China, Ru Jing phrased it, to drop off or slough off, like a skin sheds, uh, is shed by a snake. To drop off or slough off body and mind. And I'll talk more about that tomorrow. I just want to note that this is a kind of keyword that will recur in this text. Such a person who has dropped off body and mind is not contained or limited by forms, by good or bad, I'm paraphrasing Kazon here, between ordinary people and sages and sentient beings and Buddha, not caught by any of that. Who is this person who does nothing at all, right? That is, doesn't mean that you're doing something called nothing at all. Right? <laughs> Instead, you don't fabricate anything, you don't create anything with the six senses, which are seeing, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and mind is the sixth. Kazan says, its name is not known, right? Where have we heard this before? Not knowing is most intimate, right, is another famous phrase in Zen, right? Most intimate means not separate. It's not body and it's not mind. It's not two things. Body and mind are not two different things. Thoughts vanish and words fail, says Kezon. Like a fool, like an idiot. Is that a familiar phrase, to any of you? <laughs> I heard some laughter. Yes. Right, so in the song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, which we'll chant this week, that's exactly what the founder of Soto Zen in China said. Tozan Ryokai says this like a fool, like an idiot, right? That's how we should practice. To be this way is to be a true person of no position, right? Without reference points. So Koan also makes uh, some incisive comments here, and he says, uh, there's a perception of zazen, even by people who do zazen, that zazen is a kind of doing nothing, like I just said. Right? There's a thing called nothing and you're doing that. Right? You're still doing something if you think you're doing nothing. So keep closing the gap, closing the gap, closing the gap. Then uh, Koan goes on to say this. He said, there's another perception of zazen and it, it's related to this not doing. That perception is maybe zazen isn't doing nothing But still, somehow, it's outside of the realm of cause and effect. I have repeated this idea myself. That's why I'm I'm reading this to you. Cohen says, this is a very popular idea. In this view, when you're sitting zazen, you're not creating any karma. You're beyond morality, because you're not doing anything, right? (laughs) You're beyond questions of consequences. You're kind of frozen in space and time, untouched and untouching. Cohen says, I've heard this many times from many teachers. However, it's ridiculous. (laughs) I was really sorry to hear this. (laughs) (laughs) That is not what Kazan is talking about, says Cohen. Though, if we're not careful, we might read that into it do nothing at all can sound like we're separating ourselves somehow or putting ourselves in a bubble and cohen concludes for now let's read do nothing as all at all as simply don't fabricate so the difference i think that cohen is trying to draw here is don't fabricate don't create some reality for yourself doesn't mean you're not creating karma when you're sitting or right good or bad We can come back to that later if you want, but I I felt like I should clarify, in all honesty, (laughs) that I've been spreading this idea, okay. So let's go on with Kazon, this is continuing with the text. Clear water has no back or front, space has no inside or outside, completely clear, its own luminosity shines before form and emptiness were fabricated, fabricated, before they were fabricated. Objects of mind and mind itself have no place to exist. Kazan says, this has always already been so, but it is still without a name. The great teacher, the third ancestor, he's talking about Kanchi Sosan, who wrote the Shinshin Ming, which we have been recently chanting and will chant this week. He temporarily called it mind, and the venerable Nagarjuna once called it body. So these are names that teachers have used. Enlightened essence and form, giving rise to the bodies of all the Buddhas. It has no more or less about it. So it's beyond all measurement. This is symbolized by the full moon, but it is this mind which is enlightenment itself. The luminosity of this mind shines throughout the past and brightens as the present. Nagarjuna used this subtle symbol for the samadhi of all the Buddhas, but this mind is signless, it is non-dual, and differences between forms are only apparent. And as an aside, I'll say there's a story about Nagarjuna, who is a great Indian teacher in our lineage, who wrote about the two truths of relative and absolute reality. Most of you may have heard this. Uh, Once when he was lecturing, he assumed a body in the form of a moon while he was lecturing, (laughs) this big round body, expressing this non-dual mind. Kazan. Just mind, just body, difference and sameness miss the point. Body arises in mind, and when the body arises, they appear to be distinguished. When one wave arises, a thousand waves follow. The moment a single mental fabrication arises, numberless things appear. So the four elements and the five aggregates mesh. Four limbs and five senses appear and on and on until the 36 body parts and the 12-fold chain of interdependent emergence. Once fabrication arises, it develops continuity. But it still only exists through the piling up of myriad dharmas. This is kind of an explanation of how we come to be, which if you read it a couple of times is actually wonderfully clear. The mind is like the ocean waters, the body like the waves. There are no waves without water and no water without waves. Water and waves are not separate. Motion and stillness are not different. So it is said, a person comes and goes, lives and dies, as the imperishable body of the four elements and five aggregates. That's the end of the quote. This is what Zen means by eternity, by undying or unborn, and by permanence. Within just this moment, no coming and going, no birth and death, Nothing but impermanence and change is permanent. (laughs) And then this is the last of the Kheisan for today. Zazen is going right into the ocean of awareness and manifesting the body of all Buddhas. The natural luminosity of mind suddenly reveals itself and the original light is everywhere. There is no increase or decrease in the ocean and the waves never turn back. So Koan, France, calls this body-mind uh, a key word. And here's another, self-enjoyment of all the Buddhas, <laughs> right? Or ji yu zamai the true gate to the way of the Buddhas, right? This is the key also to wa, which we have been discussing for the last few weeks in class, uh, Dogen's basic instructions for practicing the way, which is, surprise, sitting zazen and giving up everything else,
1: right?
0: Uh, more on this giving up tomorrow from Kazan's point of view. Um, so I lied, there is one more quote of Kazan. He says, Thus, Buddhas have arisen in this world for the one great matter of teaching people the wisdom and insight of awakening and to give them true entry. For this, there is the peaceful, pure, when you hear pure, think non dual, right? undivided practice of sitting. This is the complete practice of self-enjoyment of all the Buddhas. This is the sovereign of all samadhis. Entering this samadhi, the ground of mind is clarified at once. You should know that this is the true gate of the way of the Buddhas. sounds a lot like Dogen. So he says, this is a paraphrase, give up your jumble of limited knowledge cut off thoughts of everyday and holy (laughs) abandon all delusions when the true mind of reality manifests the clouds of delusion dissipate and the moon of the mind shines bright so the last uh, thing I'll say today is a few more words by Kazan, but he's quoting the Buddha although the quote can't be found I understand, scholars have looked (laughs) but he says he's quoting the Buddha (laughs) He says, "Listening and thinking about it that is, the teachings are like being shut out by a door. Zazen is like coming at home, coming home and sitting at ease. And Kazan then says, "This is true." <laughs> Listening and thinking about it, views have not ceased, and the mind is obstructed. This is why it's like being shut out by a door. right? There's a gate, and we, put, we shut the door. <laughs> We shut the door when we start thinking and and speculating. True sitting puts all things to rest and yet penetrates everywhere. This sitting is like coming home and sitting at ease. I love the fact that these teachings emphasize ease. So this coming home and sitting at ease also reminds me of the song of the Grassroot Hermitage, a different teacher and a different teaching, an earlier one let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. That's Sekitoki-sen. It's simple. Open your hands and walk innocent. He also tells us, eat your meal, take a nap. (laughs) In ten square feet of your grass-roof hermitage, illuminate forms and their nature. So tomorrow we will continue with, if you have the text, A Mind Unoccupied and a body free of activity. Thank you for listening. And we have time for a few questions, either at home or here. We'll start with here. Questions or comments or uh, objections? Sure. So um, what
1: is the role of a patron
0: Patron? Yeah. Women patrons, you mean? Right. Yeah, money bags.
1: <laughs> Show me the money. Show me the money.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of, uh, you hear these various stories of women who were high born women, some of whom had lost their husbands, their husbands had died, and left them well off. And they did what widows have done for centuries. Right said, Okay, I'm done with the wife and mother thing and I am now gonna pursue whatever it is they want to pursue. And it used to be, you know, for some women going off to spiritual practice. So some of these women supported the teachings with their with their cash, but they were also practicing. But without them we wouldn't have what we have. That's what I mean by patron. Let me ask you if you don't have any, if you're stunned by this um, teaching. How does it land with you? Do you find it encouraging, or is it something that you that that's helpful? It's helpful. Helpful. Uh, That quote. I want to come and like hit you, like pat you on the back, sweetly. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Um. That last quote. Where he says relax, relax completely, like let go of hundreds of years. When I heard that, it, it for the very first time, it shocked me. I was like, Wait, what? How do you do that? Um, That's not Kazan, It's it's Sekito Kisen, But uh-huh. still, yeah, it, it's a powerful. It's very, powerful it's very powerful thing. thing yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, What's it called? Hundreds of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstruction. That's the, that's the next line. So yeah, it's a real song of liberation. Yeah. And I think it, it's definitely echoed in on Most of what he's trying to tell us is, uh, leap clear, leap clear, leap clear. Right, Whatever's obstructing you is not real. It's in your mind. Just leap clear. <laughs>
1: Relax completely.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Rudy.
1: I think when you just when you ask what, what, what really resonates in him, this is I, I I read over this yesterday when you emailed it, and the, the line that Thayson um, attributes to the Buddha, the, when you have like a, a, an idea and a set of ideas, it's when you're you're outside and you can't open the door. And when you're sitting zazen, it's being at home and relaxing at ease. And that's that's a very resonant thing for me Because as someone who, who is very prone toward all the little alleys and, and dead ends of the mind. And uh, uh, getting to sit and then, like, like, you could just sit. You could just sit and that could just be a thing you do. You don't have to have that burden of figuring it out. And that's, that's very empowering to me.
0: Uh, a Dharma friend in Houston who I didn't hear this talk but apparently gave a talk about Dharma gates are boundless I vow to enter them you know that mm-hmm. one of our vows and his conclusion apparently was if you want to go through a gate rather than like look for the door you know or the latch or the key or whatever you know is make yourself the same shape as the gate right just, just mm-hmm. like meet the gate and go through it. There's no real barrier there. Right? It's the gateless gate <laughs> when you approach it that way. Right? Mm-hmm. So shutting the door, it seems to me to be related to his insight. You know? It's like we shut the door that isn't really there. <laughs> we can just you know, say, oh, this, has got a low, this is a low gate. I'm going to duck my way through. I can do, or I'm going to turn sideways. Right? But we can, we can go through. We don't need to batter down any doors. You can always find a way, just as you are. Like. This, I hadn't planned on reading, but while I was sitting upstairs going over my text, I, I came across this, and it's in the back of this. you are just sitting, it, which has an appendix with various other relevant texts, and this is Bodhidharma. Right, so Bodhidharma is the Indian monk who brought Zen to uh, from India to China. Right, so he, this is five hundred or so years more, or more, five or six hundred years before the people we're talking about. And this is from his bloodstream sermon, so-called. Like, we don't even know if Bodhidharma existed, right? (laughs) So just take this as like a founding statement of Zen, right? This is supposedly what he says. He says, everything that appears in the three realms comes from the mind. Hence, Buddhas of the past and future teach mind, teach mind to mind, without bothering about definitions. But if they don't define it, what do they mean by mind? Right? He's asking a question that, that a, a person you know, hearing his teaching might say. If they don't define it, what do they mean? Because right? we keep hearing about mind, and nobody really defines it. Right? <clears throat> Bodhidharma replies, you ask. That's your mind. I answer, that's my mind. If I had no mind, how could I answer? If you had no mind, how could you ask? That which asks is your mind. Through endless kalpas, without beginning, whatever you do, whatever you are, wherever you are, that's your real mind. That's your real Buddha. This mind is the Buddha, says the same thing. Beyond this mind, you'll never find another Buddha. To search for enlightenment or nirvana beyond this mind is impossible. The reality of your own self-nature, Buddha nature. The absence of cause and effect, uh uh-oh, there's that again, um, is what's meant by mind. Your mind is nirvana. You might think you can find a Buddha or enlightenment somewhere beyond the mind, but such a place doesn't exist. Trying to find a Buddha or enlightenment is like trying to grab space. (laughs) Space has a name, but no form. It's not something you can pick up or put down, and you certainly can't grab it. Beyond this mind, you'll never see a Buddha. The Buddha is a product of your mind. Why look for a Buddha beyond this mind? And then he goes on for another two, or three pages like this. So, it sounds so easy. It sounds so simple. Yep. Of course, Bodhidharma's famous teaching, which is not found in any of these writings that we think we have from him, is right. Zen is a teaching beyond the scriptures, right, and pointing directly at mind. So this essay is a kind of, you know, elaboration of that basic teaching. You could sit with that for the next few days. Where are you looking? Hey, Rich, got a question?
1: Um, I just wanted to comment about um, uh, you asked what what stuck out, and uh, thank you for for focusing on this text. I hadn't really looked at it before, but I was really struck by this the part about just mind, just body, and the body and mind, when the body arises, the you know the body arises in the mind, the body, so on and so forth. said about. So the four elements in the five aggregates mesh four limbs and five senses appear and on and on to the 36 body parts and 12 fold chain of independent interdependent emergence that to me sounds like what you are just saying about like the mind we're looking at the mind in Zazen that all these things are happening in our, our sitting is that right?
0: all these things are happening in our sitting and they're happening and we tune into them we could say when we're sitting you become maybe, you know, aware of the great awareness, but they're happening anyway. <laughs> That's reality. Right. That's reality. Right. And yeah. the, the, this is all we are, is this, you know, meshing right. of these five skandhas. We take it as a self, the small self, right? right? But it's a function of this much larger, true body, right? This, that that when, when, you're, when you really see, there's nothing but this the Buddha's body and it's it's not something else. It's not something other than you. That's the teaching. Right.
1: Yeah. So what what stuck out for me was that um, the twelvefold interdependent. Uh, that to me that sounds like dependent origination, basically, from a Mahayana point of view. It
0: is, and, and, that, and it comes up again later too. And that to me that seems key to
1: what we're doing in terms of like we're trying to get off that chain of dependent origination or interdependent arising or, or emergence. Because uh, we can only have the kind of luminous, luminous mind if we get off that uh, habitual pattern of, of creating a self through our sense gates and our mind. Is that right?
0: Yeah, and we can do that just in Zazen. We just put it all down, stop fabricating. Right. Yeah. For, for every sense, there's an object. And we... Mm-hmm. we the, the senses and the objects you know are looking for each other in a sense. Right. right. So we put all of that right. down.
1: Right. I find that the trickiest objects are the mental objects, <laughs> like a thought that I cling to, or and it's, I can't let go of it. It's it's almost like attempting smell or attempting sight or attempting sound that I cling to. You know, those are the, the the mental objects are the sometimes the most difficult to to suss out.
0: He does have some things to say about that sort of thing coming up, so stay tuned. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Jess, did you have your hand up? I couldn't tell. Are you just waving? (laughs) No.
1: Hi, Toro. All of these minds that were just mentioned, are they heart minds?
0: I think for Dogen, it's body mind, you know, more that he's trying to get us to stop thinking about I have this mind, and it's up here, and it's like the real me, you know, with my ideas and my thoughts and my identity, and then there's this body that carries my mind around. Right, that's how we kind of tend to experience ourselves. But the heart-mind thing is like deeply embedded in Chinese and Japanese culture, because the same character that is sometimes translated heart is also translated mind, it's Xin, And there isn't this hard division that we, like the heart is our emotions, right? It's, it's this you know, tender sprout in the middle of our chests, right? It's what hurts or you know, swells, right? We have all these words about it. But in, in Chinese thought, Japanese thought, there isn't a, a different character for one or the other. And so you'll often see heart-mind for shin. The Japanese does have another word for heart, uh, which is a slightly different conception of heart, which is kokoro. That's a whole other story. But the, the classical Chinese character, shin means heart-mind. Yeah. So how can we say this? Body-heart-mind? Heart-body-mind? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Okay. That's enough maybe for today. Let's shed uh, the short after.